Thanks, Danny. I would uh, encourage you, if you hadn't got one, I'd invite you to come get one yet, one of the green sermon handouts. I actually have a little test on it that I want to start with um, this morning as we do our message. But um, before I do that, I'm actually going to go off script for a second. And in my own devotional reading, I am in Malachi, which is actually the last book of the Bible. And I read this this morning and it just stuck out to me as very appropriate for today. And, and this is the last two verses of the Old Testament scriptures. And it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a, a decree of utter destruction. And that affirms God's um, importance of and God's desire to, to have fathers and their children relate well and to honor one another. And so thank you, Susie, for sharing that story of, of how you were able to honor your father. I hope hope that gives us all a perspective. And, and again, for the fathers, happy Father's Day. For my dad, happy Father's Day. And um, let's, let's just thank God for, for how he set that up. Um, so I start with that, but I want to turn now to a little, I'd say, it, I guess, a test, a quiz. And I have a list of slogans. And the question is, is can you name the corporation or whatever the business that goes with the slogan? And uh, I'll, I'll just invite you to kind of yell it out together as we go through them. They'll, they'll note I, I kind of got the older ones last, so it might get a little harder as we go. But eat fresh. Subway. Just do it. Can you hear me now? Verizon. Taste the rainbow. Skittles. Yeah, Ben had that one down. Um, have it your way. Burger King. You're in good hands with Allstate. Here's a tough one. Democracy dies in darkness. I heard it. The Washington Post. Yeah, I, I put a few hard ones in there. We try harder. Avis. Here's an old one. The Breakfast of Champions. This side knew it. Not, not you guys. I, I don't know what's up with that. Fly the friendly skies. United. It's finger licking good. KFC. Back then it was Kentucky Fried Chicken, but they... You deserve a break today. That's an old McDonald's one. They had a song that goes with it too. All right, here's, here's one from when I was young. Where's the beef? Wendy's. Wendy's. Squeezably soft. Charmin. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. <laughs> All right. I, I start off with that just to make a point. We live in a time where we're constantly being sold things. Are we not? We are, um, we've grown up in the marketing era. And, and we're in a, a situation where we're, it, it's always presented that we need this or need that. And, and, and I think we have learned to be skeptical because of that. I think we have learned to, to, just because they say it's the greatest ever, 
or this will, you need this to have a good life. We've kind of learned, yeah, I, I don't know. You, am I being sold something? Am I being marketed something? We've, we've learned to sift out what is being hyped or marketed to us. We've learned to say, if they, if they say it's too good to be true, then we, we, maybe it's not true. And, and so what implication does that have for us as we proclaim the good news of Jesus? News that really is too good to, 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 to not be true, in a sense. It's, it's the greatest message ever. And I think one of the reasons why evangelism has gotten difficult is because of our marketing culture, we are, we are skeptical naturally. We need to be to survive. And so how does that affect how we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, how we present it? Um, because the news we have about Jesus is good news beyond what we could have imagined. How do we talk about it without overhyping it and actually turning people off? In other words, do we talk about the pros and the cons of following Jesus or the, the challenges of following Jesus? In our passage today, Paul is talking about how the Thessalonians and how they received the gospel, but that the gospel came to them also in the midst of affliction and suffering. That it wasn't just they said yes to Jesus and everything got easy in their life. And in fact, it was the opposite that because they said yes to Jesus, that came with opposition, afflictions, and suffering. Life got tougher when they, they heard the gospel. And so that's the, the gist of what Paul's getting across. And so what I want to do today is start with back in Acts 17 that talks about the, the situation when, when the gospel came to Thessalonica. Then we'll go through our, our passage that, that we read and see how those connect, and then we'll talk about what it means for us, the implications. So if you go back to Acts 17, and I, we did this once when we first started the, the gospel, but we see that Paul and Silas, and just a quick summary, that Paul and Silas and the whole team were led specifically to Thessalonica, that, that they were traveled through other towns and didn't stop, but when they got to Thessalonica, they were led to spend time there. And they had a specific open door to, to teach because there was a strong Jewish presence within that, that particular city. And because Paul had been trained as a rabbi, he was given an open door to teach in the synagogue. And so it says in, in that passage, in Acts 17, that he three consecutive Sabbaths he taught and what did Paul teach? Well, he taught how the Old Testament scriptures pointed ahead to a Messiah, and he showed how Jesus was that Messiah. So he, he began to introduce to them the, the good news of Jesus through what they already knew, the Old Testament scriptures. And through that teaching, some, it says some Jews came to believe. He had some measure of success amongst those of a Jewish background, but the great bulk of those who responded were not Jewish. They were devout Greeks who had been coming to the synagogue. And it, it was in Thessalonica that there were a number of those who had grown up in pagan culture, learning about Zeus and Apollo and all those stories, 
but they had seen how those were empty stories. And the teaching of the synagogue got him halfway there. It got him to start to think about there was one true God and, and all the truths of the scripture and how God cares about, you know, how we live. And, and so they began to learn the truth, but think about where that left them. Because in, from just the Old Testament, you had to become Jewish. Um, you had to actually become, um, convert to Judaism, which meant being circumcised and all kinds of things that were, would have really been very difficult, almost impossible for them to join the people of God. So when Paul came teaching about Jesus and how he was the Messiah that was also the Son of God, that he came to fulfill the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament, but he came as the Son of God who would open the door to, to the people of God, to all nations, they jumped on board. And those devout Greeks, known as God-fearers, were, became the, the big part of the group that had responded to Jesus or responded to Paul's message, and joined the church. So that's up to verse 4. That's part we talked about previously. Now getting to Acts 17.5, it says the Jews were jealous, meaning the Jewish leaders were not happy that some of their own people, as well as the devout Greeks, had, had received Paul's message and had become followers of Jesus as the Messiah. And so... After three weeks, Paul was no longer welcome to teach, and they looked for ways they could now oppose the message. And because they could not out-reason Paul, Paul knew too much. He was, he was skilled as a teacher. They couldn't defeat, defeat him in an argument. They took another route. They gathered a mob. It says they, they gathered some men who were for hire in the market, the Agora. And they're called rabble-rousers. These are just people who would go to the marketplace and had nothing to do, and you could hire them for whatever. They hired them to be a mob. And so they took that mob, and they, they went and surrounded the house of Jason, which was where Paul had been staying. And they began chanting for and calling loudly for Paul so that they could, you know, take him into custody or whatever they would do. But Paul was not there. He was, he was busy. Likely he was out doing his own work. He, he made tents during the day. And, and so instead, they, they took hold of Jason. They dragged him and a few other Christians to the city authorities. And they charged them with being against Caesar, of worshiping another king, rather than Caesar, of worshiping Jesus. And, and so they were bringing charges against the Christians um, the Greek Christians. And so Jason was able to post bail, and, and so, but he would have to answer for this. So, so there seems to be one particular believer named Jason. What do we know about him? Well, we know he, he was clearly Greek. Jason's a Greek name. In fact, I remember as a kid, there was a movie called Jason and the Argonauts, and, you know, about this Greek, Greek people. Um, and so it's a clearly Greek name, so he's not a Jewish background. He also was at least somewhat wealthy. He was able to support and host Paul and his team at his house. Likely his house became the gathering place for the new group of Christians, um, especially after they were no longer welcome to gather at the synagogue. And he had then taken a public stance on Jesus. He was publicly accused of worshiping Jesus as the king. 
And he is also publicly identified with the church, with these new group of believers, by hosting and supporting Paul. So, so Jason is one of the key people that God used to establish the Thessalonian church. And if you read through Acts, you'll see that in almost every city, there was one key believer that God used to establish the church and to get it on right footing. And it, it, sometimes their names, sometimes they're not. Like in Philippi, it was Lydia, a businesswoman, who became the key component of the church. In the uh, next city, it would be at, in Athens, it would be Dionysius and a woman named Damaris, who were the key named leaders that set up that church. But here in Thessalonica, it was Jason. And that was important because, because of all this uproar, Paul and Silas would have to leave. So we don't know how long they were in Thessalonica and able to teach and get the church started, but it would not have been long, maybe only a couple months total, that they had a chance to begin to teach them and help them get started in the faith so that they were ready to stand. Um, it would be Jason and the other Thessalonian leaders who would keep the church going. So I want you to think about that, that Jason and that group of Greeks, along with maybe a small group of, of Jewish background be, people, when, you, when we come now to our, our main text in, in 1 Thessalonians 2, that, that that's the ones receiving this message. And so in verse 13, Paul, Paul writes along with Silas, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really was, the word of God, which is at work at you in believers. God prays and he's so thankful that the way they had received the message enabled them to stand strong when they would face this opposition, that it was God at work in them. It wasn't Paul's persuasiveness as a teacher that did it. It was God's at work within them. And, and because of that, they received the gospel message not just as some other traveling teacher, but as God's word spoken to them. Um, we live in a religiously pluralistic culture. It has especially become so in the last 50 or so years that there are multiple religions and that they all claim to be true. And thankfully in our nation, we are free to worship God and there's no government telling us how and who we are to worship. But because of that, we, we live in this culture where everyone is making these claims about what they believe. And, and so from a pluralistic perspective, religion is, here's this idea, that religions are the result of human beings with limited knowledge trying to understand God. That's kind of how the, the world would think of religion. I don't know if anyone watched the, the TV series, The Good Place. And it's about a theoretical afterlife. And it's a totally secular view of the afterlife. It's, it's interesting. But he makes a comment in it that, you know, they ask, well, did anyone have it right? And he says, well, all religions have about 5% of it right. Right? Like, they all have a little bit of truth. But none of them have a toehold on the truth. That is the world's perspective on religion, right? We all have a little bit of truth, but none of us have it. None of us know. And, 
And so in the world's mind, if we claim to actually speak the truth, then, then that's arrogant. That's how dare we say that we, we have the truth. But let me make an argument that what we claim as Christians along with Judaism is that it's not about us figuring out God by our own limited knowledge, which if you come up from that way, it's true. How could any of us understand a God who created the world and, and all that is God is and what it, it, it would make sense that we could only grasp a little bit. But that's not what we claim. We claim that God chose to reach down to us and reveal himself to us. That the only way we could know what God is like is if he chose to somehow communicate into our world. That, that it comes from him, not from us trying to reach him. So, so for those who are uh, Mar- Ant- Ant-Man, right? It's, if you've watched the Ant-Man movies, it's not that the ants figured out what, what uh, Pip, I think Pim, Pim was about. It's that Pim was able to figure out how to communicate in the ant's way of communicating. Right? That's the only way that Ant-Man could be Ant-Man. Likewise, it is not that we figured out God. It is God chosen, has chosen to reveal himself, speak into our, our life. And think about it for a minute. How, how, how does that happen? Well, if, if, if God exists, and moreover, if he is a personal God, not just some force like Star Wars, right? If he's a personal God who exists, and moreover, if he values people, like we're not just science experiments, right? He actually cares about us, actually wants to interact with us, then it makes sense that he would find some way to communicate with us, that he would take the initiative. And what God did is... It might not be as easy as you think to make that kind of communication, how to speak into our world, but, but he did it, and he did it through his word, through the story of the Bible. It's not just an instruction manual or a, a, a treatise. It is the long story of God reaching down into humanity and interacting with specific people, and we learn about God through those interactions, through the relationship specifically with the, the Old Testament people of Israel and, and on as the story progresses to God sending his son. And, and so that's why sometimes the Bible is a little bit difficult because you read about how they were in ancient cultures and how people were violent and, and they were prone to bad decisions. Well, God stepped into that violent world and began interacting with people so that we could begin to see his heart and his character. And so if you're not sure about that, if you're, you're thinking, well, the Bible's nice, maybe there's some good thoughts in it, I would encourage you to, to read it. Start with the New Testament, though, first, because it's an easier place to start. But read it with the idea that could this be God's way of speaking into people's lives? God's way of communicating with us. Receive it, at least test the idea that it could be the word of God and not just the word of men. That's our claim as Christians. When the Galatians, or not Galatians, the Thessalonians, they, when they heard Paul, that's how they received it. That's why they had the faith. And so in verse 14 and 15, it says that they became imitators 
of the, the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, which means the, the initial church, the early church, the one that started um, right after Jesus had raised from the dead, that church was in Judea, they, actually in Jerusalem. And it says they suffered opposition in Jerusalem. You read that in, as you read the story of Acts. It talks about how the early church faced all kinds of opposition and hostility. And what Paul says is, you guys are doing the same thing that happened to the churches, the early church, right? They faced opposition from their countrymen. Now you're facing opposition from your countrymen. And, and it just keeps happening. The, 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 you know, back at those, for those in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish leaders, they, they killed the Lord Jesus. They've killed the prophets in the past. Now they're opposing the gospel as we're preaching it. So they drove us out. The opposition to, to the gospel message is constant. And so you are, you are just joining in what, what all Christians have experienced. You, in other words, we shouldn't expect that it would be easy to believe in Jesus. It's normal to face opposition, to face challenges when we, we take in this word. Verse six, 16 is interesting. It says, it, um, they showed their opposition by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. We came with this message of salvation, but they didn't want us to share it. They hindered that. And it says, so as always to fill up their measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Initially, the main opposition to Christianity came from the Jewish leaders. Paul would know that because at one point he was one of them. He was one of the Jewish leaders who was persecuting and opposing the church. He even worked to put Stephen to death. He, he had Christians beaten and arrested he knows exactly where they're coming from because he was there and he has compassion on them. Um, but he says what they're trying to do is hinder the gospel. Now, that was initial in the first 30 or 40 years. Later in the Bible, especially by the time of Revelation, the, the main opposition would switch from the Jewish leaders to the Roman authorities. When you get to Revelation, it's, it's mainly the Roman authorities that are the, the opposition that they would face. Um, God was patient with those who opposed the gospel, but he was not going to let them win. He was allowing a time for more and more to receive the message, to hear it, and come into salvation. People like Paul and others who heard. But eventually, excuse me, they would face the wrath. Now that this, this phrase, the wrath has come upon them at last, is a bit confusing. And, and the reason is, it looks forward to something that Jesus predicted, but had not yet happened. And that is the destruction of Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders, the same ones who opposed the gospel, would eventually face the utter wrath when they rebelled against the Roman power and there was a, a, a rebellion that lasted about three years and was violently crushed and put down with many dead and it ended with Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple being destroyed. So Jesus had predicted that back in 30 AD. The destruction would happen in 70 AD. But that destruction had not happened at the time Paul was writing this letter, but he knew it would. So ra the wrath was coming upon them. He saw it ahead. Moving on to verse 17, Paul says, But we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, 
but not in heart. So when they had to leave Thessalonica, it says they were torn away. Um, and they had to leave suddenly. And, and you can imagine from Paul's perspective, they got like, will they hold on? Will they continue to believe despite this challenge that they're certainly going to face and are facing? Um, but he says, we held you in our heart. And, and he says, we, we, we desired, we, we wanted eagerly to come back and see you face to face, but we were hindered. And again and again, it says, but Satan hindered us. I want to hold off on that one second. We'll come back to that. But he says, they were hindered from coming back. And then in verse 19 and 20, Paul wants to make something very clear. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. What he's saying is it wasn't because we didn't care that we didn't come back, right? He's emphasizing that the, the reason they didn't come back was not, you know, it's like we, we value, you are our joy and crown. And I think he's not just talking in general, he's specifically meaning the Thessalonians, that their faith in Christ, how they turned from idols to Jesus was an example. You know, they were a great example for other Greek churches and and he's saying, of course we would have come back if we could, but we were hindered by Satan. What prevented Paul and Silas from coming back? Well, on an earthly level, it was the, the opposition to him continued, and Paul was such a public figure that if he would have traveled back to Thessalonians, the whole thing would have erupted again. And it's quite likely that they had, for Jason to not be arrested they had to agree to leave the city, right? It's, so Paul had to stay away, at least for a time. Um, but what Paul is saying, there was, it's, this is more than just human opposition. There is a darker force at work. God has an enemy named Satan. He is the one that's stirring the animosity in the hearts of both the Jewish leaders and the Greek and Roman officials. God has an enemy that's actively working against the gospel that doesn't want the good news to be shared and spread and is fighting against what God is doing. And I want to briefly just recount, I think it's my favorite part in scripture. It's Revelation 12. It is an allegory, which means it's, it's, it's telling a story, a very fanciful story and making an import, some important points. And it's an allegorical story that describes the opposition we face when we say yes to Jesus. It's about a great dragon. And the great dragon is God's ancient enemy, right? A, a ser the, the serpent in the garden, a, a dragon is just a serpent with wings. And that serpent is Satan. And in the allegory, that's the serpent, the dragon is pursuing a woman who's about to give birth to a male child who will be the ruler of the universe. In other words, it's about Jesus being born. And this ancient enemy is going to pursue Jesus. The dragon wants to devour the male child, Jesus. But God protects both the woman, and the woman represents the faithful Jewish people throughout the centuries and protects the child. God prevents Satan from, from killing Jesus. And of course, Satan becomes, or Jesus becomes the Lord of, the, Lord of all. He wins, and the allegory ends with the rage of the dragon. Now that Jesus is out of reach and he can no longer pursue the child, 
What's he want to do? And, and so what will the dragon do? How will he vent his rage? And here's the, here's the key line for us today. It's Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to take war on the rest of her offspring. This is the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the faithful Jewish people. So here's the, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's the church. It's the followers of Jesus. We are the offspring. And so the dragon, the ancient enemy of God, is venting his rage on followers of Christ. We should expect opposition when we say yes to Jesus, when we join the winning team. We will win in the end, but we do gain an enemy. And we will face opposition. We will face um, hard times. Just because we follow Jesus does not mean life necessarily gets easier. It does get better. Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to any of us. And he's worth anything we face. But realize saying yes to Jesus does not mean life is so easy now. And you get out of problems. In fact, sometimes you get more problems. So when we talk to people about Jesus, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to convey the truth, to convey the, the, the point of things. I want to make three points about that from this, and then we're going to talk about how we present it. And point number one is the gospel of God does not depend on the favor of government or society. It does not depend upon the favor of government or society. Um, we don't need the government to approve of our message. We are able to spread the gospel and share the good news. Now, why, why does God do that? I think at one point in America, we got used to having the favor of our culture, and we were talking about it in our meeting this morning, how at one time, Sunday mornings, they didn't have other events on Sunday mornings and now they do. And now it's really hard to be consistently coming to church, especially if you have teenagers involved in sports, right? Because government no longer makes it easy. We don't need government to make it easy. But we got used to that. Um, and I think God allows opposition because it forces us to take the message seriously, to decide if we're really in or not. Do you ever, when you're like signing up for a website, they have that little box, right? The terms of agreement, do you read that? I don't, right? I just want to click that box to as quickly get to whatever I'm trying to order on the internet as soon as I can, right? You click it without really reading it. I think when there's no opposition, sometimes we could do that with the gospel, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree to that. I just want eternal life, right? You know, we click through and accept the terms of agreement without really thinking about it. But when we know that saying yes to Jesus means okay, you're going to face some tough times. We're actually prone to read the terms of agreement, the call, the, the terms and conditions, and think it out. That's one reason why God allows opposition. Second reason, the gospel can take root and flourish in harsh conditions. The gospel is like a seed, right? You throw it out, and you think seeds were only going to grow where... Um, you know, in certain places, but it's amazing where, where trees will grow and how they'll grow in, in harsh conditions. The gospel can grow in surprising ways. 
similar to how Paul was torn away from the Thessalonians, after the communists took over China in the 1940s, they kicked out all the Western missionaries. And there was only a small percentage-wise of Christians in China at that point. And many in the West assumed it would be the end of the church, right? They're, they're not going to grow if we're not there. You know, we, us Americans or British or Westerners, if we're not there to support and help them and teach them, then the church will die out. When communist China opened up again, in the 80s especially, there was some astonishment. The church had not only, you know, maintained, it had thrived. And the numbers are still hard to do because sometimes the church is underground and they're not, they don't have complete freedom. And so some debate, are there 30 million Christians, 60 million, even 100 million Christians in, in China nowadays? We don't know. But the gospel thrived despite the opposition. The third truth is God uses opposition to build within us a steadfast faith. If when you accept Jesus, you get all kinds of benefits, you never get sick, you never lose your job, everything will go smoothly in your life. Once you have Jesus, it's all good, right? It's life is just a, you know, a bucket of roses or, or whatever you want, you know. We, God says, oh, you're my, you're my son or daughter. I'm just going to give you, every, I'm going to give you candy, right, you know. How does that work as a parent, by the way? You know, just give your kids whatever they want and ask for in the moment. Is that, that the best way to parent? Is that, is that what your dad did? No, okay. So, so if, if God did that, then how would you know whether you loved Jesus or whether you just loved all the benefits of saying yes to Jesus, right? If life got perfect and easy the minute you became a Christian and you never faced hard times, would you say, well, I, I, maybe I love Jesus, but mostly I just love what he does for me. That is one reason why God allows us to face challenges, enduring for his sake. Because when we go through those trials of life, our faith can go deep and strong so that we know that our love for God is real and not just self-interested religious observance. Romans 5, 3 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The one good gift we're given and will not be taken away when you say yes to Jesus is the Holy Spirit lives with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So no matter what you're going through, and maybe you showed up this Sunday morning and you're going through difficult times, know this, Jesus will not leave you nor forsake you. He will get you through whatever you're facing. He will stand with you. He will be your strength and your portion forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So therefore, when we are sharing the good news with people, we, we care about, we want them to think through the gospel, we need to talk about, I'm not sure they're really cons, but I don't know a better word, the, 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 the hard side of the gospel. And here are four, that the narrow road of discipleship. Learning to follow Jesus means taking in his teaching and learning to follow what he says in all aspects of our life. It's a narrow road of discipleship. Second con is the high calling of the kingdom. That, that there are certain things that our society, it's acceptable, but that we as believers will say no to. 
because Jesus has placed a higher calling on our life than that that the society does. The third con, opposition. You may get made fun of for your faith. You may be looked down upon. You may even be mocked. But we know he, they mocked him too. That we are becoming imitators of the churches in Judea. That they faced opposition when they, they said yes to Jesus as well. And lastly, we have a new enemy. There's a spiritual being that will be against us and will seek to undermine our faith and lead us from faithful service in our Lord. So let's face the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But know this, the pros are so much greater than the cons. The cons are nothing compared to what we gain in Jesus. And I don't have time to go into that. I'm going to bring this to a close. But let me give you one, one verse that Paul said. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God is doing something amazing. And you don't want to miss out on it. You, you can't wait to see what it will be like. Even the sufferings and even the difficulties we face in this life, we will see them in a whole new way when we get to that time when the, the whole plan is revealed. One day, what is in secret will be shouted from the mountaintops and we will see and understand what God was up to all along. And we will say, yes, God, you are good. And I'm so thankful. I might, we might even be thankful for our sufferings because they produce something good in us. You do not want to miss out on what God is up to through Jesus Christ. I want to end you with that. So friends, have you ever counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? Have you ever just thought about, like, have thought about that cost? Secondly, what reason would you give that Jesus really is worth it despite the trials you may face? If someone asked you, what, what reason would you give? Yeah, he's worth it. Wasn't easy, but he's worth it. And lastly, when has the Lord sustained you through one of those trials? When has he just undergirded you, as Susie talked about in, in one of her, her challenges? Have you had that experience of God just carrying you through some of the most difficult times? Let me pray. Father Jesus, I thank you that you promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that it's not that you don't let us face difficulties, but you promise to undergird us, be with us, to carry us through when they happen, that if there's one thing we can count on, you will not leave us to face them alone. And so, Father, we, Jesus, we worship you this morning. We honor you and we praise you. And we do this in the name of Jesus Christ the Son of God, our Savior. Amen.